0: Can you hear me? You know, often the, there's a problem with the microphones. At least I seem to have a problem. Um, all right, my, my name is John Herbst. I am the director of the Dinu Petruccio Eurasia Center. And thank you all very much for coming to, for today's event. Uh, my job right now is to introduce Bridget Brink, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the State Department. Um, Bridget's bio you have, so I will not repeat anything there. Let me just mention that she just came back from Kiev. So she has the latest information. And also, as a representative of the administration, she has some very interesting things to say. And with that, I'll turn the podium over to Bridget. Thank you.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much, Atlanta Council. Thank you very much, Ambassador Herbst. It's such an honor to be here with so many dedicated and knowledgeable colleagues. Uh, thanks to Ambassador Chali, I know he had to leave to go to uh, St. Louis this afternoon, and to all of you distinguished guests. uh, When I talked to Ambassador Herbst about uh, contributing to this uh, conference and about being on a panel, I suggested being on the conflict panel, because as he mentioned, I just came back from Ukraine and, and also eastern Ukraine, and I'm glad to talk about that. Uh, And then he suggested I contribute to the keynote, which I'm really honored to do. So I thank you for that, and my remarks are going to be a little broader than, at least in this segment. And thinking what I would say to this very august group, um, I wanted to step back a moment and to consider why we are all here. And I thought about it, and I often think about what my family in the Midwest says when I tell them what I'm doing and where I'm going and what I work on, and they say, why are you doing this? Not all of them, but some. The answer is because Ukraine's success is also America's success. There are some principles that I want to highlight, which underscore the US approach to Ukraine. But also importantly, I'm responsible uh, in terms of the State Department for US foreign policy to countries uh, other than Ukraine, but including Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Belarus, and Moldova. But there are some principles that uh, underlie our approach, the U.S. approach to this region in particular, that I just wanted to underscore. one, that every country has the right to chart its own future. Two, borders cannot be changed by force. and three, supporting democracies, meaning support for rule of law, civil society, society, free media, also equals and helps the United States build partners to fight global threats, and also investment opportunities for U.S. businesses, among other strategic interests. So I come back to success for Ukraine means success for the United States. A Ukraine with strong institutions, free of corruption, provides an important partner to the United States. A stable and secure Ukraine that respects the rule of law is is also attractive for U.S. business. And a successful Ukraine sends a strong message to Russia's other neighbors who see their future as we do, as part of a Europe that is whole, free, and at peace. So where does this leave us on Ukraine policy? Many often ask me. It leaves us strongly supporting Ukraine. You've probably seen the Vice President's uh, remarks during his speech at the Munich Security Conference in February, maybe some of you were also there, where he said, we must continue to hold Russia accountable and demand that they honor the Minsk agreements, beginning by de-escalating the violence in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Other administration officials, including President Trump, Ambassador Haley, and most recently Secretary Tillerson, have also been strong in public about U.S. support for Ukraine. Here's what my Secretary of State said at the NATO-Ukraine Council meeting, uh, Commission meeting last Friday in Brussels. Allies stand firm in our support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. We do not and will not accept Russian efforts to change the borders of the territory of Ukraine. We support Germany and France's work to find a diplomatic solution to the ongoing crisis in eastern Ukraine. And we are alarmed by the escalating violence and call on Russia to exercise its influence over the separatists to stop the violence and attacks on the OSCE monitors and facilitate their access. As Ambassador Herbst said, I recently returned from a six-day trip uh, to Kiev, Kramatorsk, and Slovyansk, uh, and had the chance to meet with many Ukrainian officials and geoactivists, members of the RADA, uh, OSCE monitors, and many others. I would like to talk more as, as uh, useful on the details of the situation in eastern Ukraine, which I think is very disconcerting. Uh, I do hope this April 1st ceasefire uh, recommitment uh, actually works, but the history of those is not, not very good. Um, but I want to share a couple of sort of summary thoughts. Uh, one is that the violence is at its highest, highest levels recorded by the OSCE, which is quite disturbing for us and I think for all of you that the OSCE monitor safety is also increasingly at risk with more and more uh, aggressive uh, physical uh, attacks against the monitors and threats against the monitors, and that the threat to civilian infrastructure, which could potentially affect a huge number of people, is real and serious. So from our perspective, and again, as Secretary Tillerson made clear last Friday with NATO allies, There needs to be a visible verifiable and irreversible improvement in the security situation in eastern ukraine our position on crimea remains the same we won't recognize russia's occupation so while security is absolutely critical what is no less important to ukraine's success is success in its effort to reform i know many of you are supporting that actually the leaders of ukraine The reformers inside and outside of government and many people here deserve a huge amount of credit for how far Ukraine has come, especially under the circumstances of the conflict in the east and the occupation of uh, Crimea. I want to offer my congratulations to Ukrainian colleagues for the IMF board decision to release uh, $1 billion, which is also a signal of uh, international support and endorsement for Ukraine's reform path. Ukraine has restored its public finances and achieved macroeconomic stability. It strengthened the economy, enabling it to grow in 2016 after three years of recession. It reduced the budget deficit and tripled foreign exchange reserves to 16 billion. 2016 was the first year since independence that Ukraine did not buy gas directly from Russia. So in the context of all these accomplishments, still there's a lot more that needs to be done. First, reduce reliance on Russian gas to strengthen energy security. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline project, which would concentrate about 80% of European gas imports from Russia on a single route, poses a real threat to European and Ukrainian energy security. Pension reform and land reform, this is going to be a key uh, couple of reforms. Obviously, difficult political reforms, but key to moving forward, including with the next IMF tranche. Ukraine must complete transparent privatizations of state-owned enterprises. Uh, Repeated and unfortunately failed attempts at privatization send the wrong signal to potential investors. From our perspective, Kyiv could be better and more transparent um, to ensure better and more transparent governance of other state-owned enterprises, especially in the energy and the defense sectors. And we strongly encourage this privately and publicly. But most importantly, and this I want to underscore uh, here, and it's something that I spoke a lot about uh, with colleagues and counterparts in Kyiv, is that Ukraine must accelerate efforts to combat corruption, including establishing an independent anti-corruption court (coughs) and giving the uh, NABU the powers it needs to fulfill its mandate. Corruption is what drove Ukrainians to the Maidan. Combating corruptions credibly (coughs) will help restore Ukrainians' faith in its government. So to conclude, there has been huge progress and huge potential. But to realize all of this for Ukraine and for the United States, it needs your and our continued support with regard to getting the security situation into a better place, supporting implementation of the Minsk agreements, and make reforms irreversible. The United States stands fully with Ukraine in these efforts. And thank you very much uh, for the chance to speak with you today.
2: Thank you all for joining us. It's a great conference at a really important time, not only for Ukraine, but for U.S. policy toward the region. My name is Mark Samakovsky. I'm a non-resident senior fellow here at the Atlanta Council. The topic today is obviously on Ukraine-Russia conflict, a path to resolution or freezing. We're joined with probably the perfect group to discuss this issue. Uh, to my left, Bridget Brink, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, who covers the region. Uh, And I am lucky enough to say I've worked with Bridget not only in the region but also back here in Washington for the the last two administrations. And there's probably no one better to focus on these issues and to advise a new administration on how to proceed with this region. To her left, uh, Ambassador John Herps, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and the head of the Eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council, and just a distinguished leader on these issues uh, both here domestically and abroad. Uh, to his left, Ambassador Paula Dobryansky, former Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs. Uh, she's been focused on this region and is actually going to Ukraine today. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to hear her thoughts. And uh, it's an honor for me as someone who is also a first-generation American uh, with Ukrainian background to have Ambassador Dobryansky here who's got a great heritage tied to Ukraine. To her left, uh, Dr. Alexander Litvinenko, the Deputy Secretary of the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council He's worked for over 20 years in an outside government, Ukraine, uh, and he's going to have plenty of discussions here in Washington with the U.S. government on these issues. Finally, Mr. Alexei Melnik, co-director of foreign relations and international security programs at the Razumkov Center in Kiev. Uh, congratulate him on his work and his center's leadership uh, on these issues. I traveled to Ukraine about a decade ago, and that was my first stop in Kiev, was to the Razumkov Center. As you all know, Russia's aggression in Ukraine including the first change of borders in Europe since World War II, represents a new strategic reality in the region. The standing ceasefire in Ukraine is in name only as violence continues with continued escalations and Russia's move to establish its position on the ground and also to further integrate the Donbass into Russia. Secretary Tillerson travels to Moscow next week. The date has been announced on April 12th where Ukraine is listed as the top issue that will be of discussion during his meetings. My first question to all of you is particularly on the conflict and the status and the trajectory of where you see it. Uh, in particular, the future of the Minsk Accords, and as the label of this panel questions whether freezing the conflict is in the interests of not only Ukraine uh, but the United States, particularly considering Russia's historical role in freezing many other separatist conflicts in the region to its advantage. And I'd love to start at the end of our panel with uh, Mr. Melnik and, and get a Ukrainian perspective.
3: Uh, thank you, Sure. Uh, my answer will be very short. If the freezing is a good option, if we consider the other options, what are the other options? Either escalation or resolution of the conflict, since the resolution of, a, of the, this conflict is unlikely in the near future, and the other option is not probably Very attractive. I would say that the freezing of the conflict is probably the best we can achieve in the say coming months or years. Please.
4: First of all, I am very thankful for this invitation. And I'm, I I'm very. Uh, I'm apologize for my very Ukrainian English, but I hope it helps you to understand the situation. Uh, when we are speaking about what kind of recent conflict we can discuss right now. Now we see a real escalation of the uh, violence. Russian aggression has a two main dimensions. The first battle on the Donbas, and as uh, Ambassador Charlie said, we lost at least 17 uh, our soldiers and officers for the last two uh, weeks. And the second uh, very important uh, Russian uh, uh, aggression dimension is a subversive campaign. Uh, for Only for last week, we saw two assassinations Mr. Voroninkov, Russian, uh, flew from uh, Moscow, and uh, uh, Ukrainian officer of counterintelligence who were killed in Mariupol. And in this uh, day, we see a huge diversion in Ukrainian munition storage in Balakria when uh, Russian uh, subverse and destroyed a huge Ukrainian uh, capacity of uh, munition. I think now we have to say about de-escalation and full implementation of security um, block of Minsk agreement. I mentioned about ceasefire. I mentioned about withdraw Russian uh, uh, troops, withdraw weaponry, and uh, release of hostages.
5: I, uh, on the the point of freezing the conflict, I I would say I don't see that as a solution. I see that as maybe a Band-Aid, but not not a solution to what has transpired on the ground. Fundamentally, you have not only the military aspect, which you've addressed, but you also have the political consequences. I know when I was last in Kiev, there were many Ukrainians who had raised with me what will happen to their voting rights? What will happen to their ownership of their homes in the region? And one cannot leave that just hanging. It's part of their country, it's part of their future. And then there's also not only the military and the political, but there's also the humanitarian. There are 2.5 million people who have been displaced. By freezing a situation, again, you're not addressing many of the circumstances that, which have caused instability and disruption. I see it as in everyone's interest that there is a solution that's a ceasefire. It's a military mm-hmm. solution. The borders are secured for Ukraine. Its sovereignty is, is in its hands and that these political questions, as well as humanitarian questions, are addressed and resolved. It's not only in Ukraine's interest, it's in Europe's interest, it's in Russia's interest, it's in a global interest, because what happens there does have ramifications, not just for the region, but beyond.
0: Three points. First, um, Alexei's right that a frozen conflict would be better than what you have right now. So as an interim step, that would not be a bad thing. Um, two, on Minsk. Minsk is deeply imperfect, but it has been the vehicle by which the Europeans have maintained sanctions on the Kremlin. So that's a, very, that's a net plus. Three, uh, it's very important that even if we were able to achieve an, end, an actual ceasefire, that the pressure remain on the Kremlin so that we get to the solution that Paul outlined, meaning Ukraine has full control of the Donbass, control of the border.
1: Uh, First of all, thanks a lot, and uh, thanks to Mark, who's my longtime friend and colleague for many years, and who was a star in the past and still is now. Uh, I would just say, from the US, from the administration position, uh, the Minsk agreements may be imperfect, but they are the only thing that all parties uh, to the conflict have agreed. They also contain all of the elements which one would need to resolve the conflict. And in that respect, they are important, they are worth supporting, and we would like to see an acceleration of their implementation. And that will start with security.
5: May I add two variables just in this that I didn't mention on Minsk, because I focus more on freezing the conflict and not on a front game, but on an end game. Mm. Um, On Minsk, just two points. It might be worth injecting in our analysis of Minsk going forward the fact that we have the French elections and also the German elections. And the outcome of those elections also can have bearing on uh, the uh, Minsk agreement and the way in which it goes forward. So I'm just injecting that in here. And another point is, is I know that at times, some uh, experts, there are different positions on this, and not to uh, detract from, the strong roles that uh, Europe has played in this, but also some have injected in looking forward, what role should the United States play? Should it play a more direct role in and at the table um, in a solution?
2: Let's move to that section of the remarks, is focusing on the US role and the European role in resolving the conflict. President Trump uh, came into office on Russia issues potentially as the, the most talked about aspect of his foreign policy and trying to showcase a willingness to reset or improve the relationship with Moscow. There was many concerns, both because of the campaign's uh, unique uh, and disconcerting role with Russia uh, during the campaign, that Ukraine would be the cost of improved U.S.-Russian relations, at least so far because of the political scandal that is going on internally here in the United States. There has been a boxing in of the administration and its ability to change its approach to Russia. And people like the UN ambassador and now Secretary Tillerson at the NATO-Ukraine Commission last week have made some very strong statements about the staying power of U.S. commitment to Ukraine's territorial integrity. Can you comment on not only the role of the United States and its importance to resolving the conflict? whether the United States should play a more active role in diplomacy and resolving the conflict, but potentially taking a role alongside its French and German counterparts. And then lastly, because of the staying power of transatlantic unity on sanctions, the role of French and German elections potentially in breaking that unity if we, we get a candidate in either country who is not as committed to sanctions as before. And if possible, I'd love to start with, uh, with you, Bridget, uh, and get a U.S. perspective.
1: Uh- I would just start off by saying this. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily share that analysis. Uh, From my perspective and from the administration perspective, uh, and even previous administrations also, we believe that it would be a good thing to have a better relationship with Russia and to be able to work with Russia on areas of shared interests. And that is something that I know the President and our Secretary are all committed to. And as you mentioned, the Secretary announced Uh, his visit to Moscow, which is going to come up on April 12th. And Ukraine, among other things, are going to be key parts of that. So we think that that's an important thing for the United States. And as we consider what the policy is, and as in every administration, thinking through what will the policy be in its detail, and what are the foundations, I just go back to the principles that I mentioned in the opening remarks about Uh, U.S. position of uh, no change of borders by force, about countries' ability uh, to chart their own future, and about uh, the United States' support for countries developing democratically, because those democratic countries tend to be the countries with which we can fight global threats and which are the most uh, open to U.S. investment and business. with regard to your, your questions and uh, Ambassador Dobryansky's mention of the European elections, obviously, yes, the elections, I think, are something we're all watching. I mean, it's not up to us in the United States in terms of the future of uh, France or Germany. Uh, but they will have an impact, I think, on the approaches toward Ukraine. Uh, but what I can say is that uh, we have, and, and I expect we'll continue to cont- work very closely with the French and the Germans, who are part of the Normandy format, together with the Russians and the Ukrainians, to try to help implement uh, Minsk. How exactly we do that, I think that's something still not quite determined, but we're all very focused on results. And by results, I mean moving uh, implementation of Minsk forward, but most importantly, starting with security. And to do security, it might be one of your questions later, I think we need a. We need more than just a ceasefire. I, I think from, from our perspective, the ceasefires have been tried, but they don't hold. And um, there's going to have to be more than that that is going to help us unlock the full implementation of MIS.
0: Uh i like to come with your questions from a slightly different optic. I think if you go back to, say, the beginning of the year, as one looked at the defense of Ukraine, there were real reasons for pessimism. You had a president-elect who was more Neville Chamberlain than Winston Churchill. You had an impending election in the Netherlands, and then, of course, in France and in Germany, where we thought that people who did not understand the security dimensions of Russian revisionism might become uh, leaders. But as you've already mentioned, Mark, uh, whatever instincts President Trump has, he's been boxed in, thank goodness. Uh, The elections in the Netherlands turned out well. Highly likely that the elections in, in France will turn out well. And I think it's nearly certain, because both major candidates in Germany are, are OK on this issue, that the German elections will turn out well. Even if um, somehow, Marie Le Pen were to win the election in Paris, I suspect, watching, what, what we, watching the changing of position in Germany in response to the Trump administration, we'd see stepped-up German leadership to find a way to maintain sanctions.
5: I would just add, because I already made a reference, I'd add uh, to the com- the comments made about the U.S. role. I think, as Bridget had read to all of us, uh, a part of Secretary Tillerson's remarks at the NATO meeting, I thought they were very significant in terms of what he said about uh, uh, holding firm on Crimea, and that we would not uh, accept anything less than Crimea back to Ukraine. He also uh, addressed the concern about the aggression on the Eastern Front. And again, the language that was used, I thought, was uh, very, very clearly stated and very forthright. I do think the U.S. role (coughs) matters, and it matters because what has happened in Ukraine has so many ramifications in many different areas. It challenges the international order. It challenges Ukraine's own sovereignty. And it also is something that is looked at not only just in Europe itself, but in many other parts of the world uh, in how one deals with it. I do think that our role in this certainly matters.
4: I am very thankful for Paula Dobranski for mention about Crimea. Oh. And from my point <coughs> of view, the conflict, uh, the Donbas, is only a part of broader picture, which include annexation of Crimea, Russian subversive campaign against Ukraine, including political saboteurs, uh, ter- diversions, uh, terror, uh, includes uh, cyber attacks, uh, economic war, etc. This broader picture includes Russian military buildup near Ukrainian border. I am saying about three new divisions, uh, 105th, uh, 144th, and uh, 3rd Division. I am saying about three, new, four new army, 49th and 8th Army, of uh, the South uh, Military District. I am saying about uh, First uh, Tanks Army and um, 20th uh, uh, Field Army of uh, Western Military District. I am saying about military build up, Russian military build up in Crimea, etc. This uh, prepar- preparing uh, Threaten not only Ukraine. This uh, <clears throat> situation threatened to European security and even global security. And I do believe that only the U.S., European countries, can and, uh, can play key role for resolving for sustainable resolving of this problem. Donbas is only bright, important, key, but only part of this
3: situation well let me go back a little bit about uh, the Minsk agreement and uh, the possible ways of resolution of the conflict because i think what what is missing sometimes in the discussions that for instance even on this panel was mentioned that the agreement was signed between the parties actually it's not true because the party to the conflict which is the russian federation as we all know is not a party to this agreement so because Russia was allowed to play a role of mediator and a peacemaker during the whole process, and again, there are no Russian commitments on paper. Of course, there is something that you know outside uh, this paper. But talking about the Minsk Agreement or being uh, or having no alternative to the Minsk Agreement, we should always keep in mind that there is no Russian commitments on paper, and Russia. Russia is not stated as a party to the conflict. It complicates this complicated process even further. Uh, A second point is about the U.S. role and the European Union role in the resolution of the conflict. From the very, very first day of the conflict, it was not like a matter of bilateral relations between Ukraine and Russia. So I think that uh, the United States, Europe, uh, should understand uh, and form their own interest in the resolution of the conflict. And the assistance provided to Ukraine, which I always grateful I t- take any chance to thank the people who provide assistance uh, for our country, uh, should be also based not on like charity approach, it should be based on national interests. Because if you look at the current uh, NATO strategy, our NATO approach towards Russia, it's this so-called three D approach: defence, deterrence, and dialogue. I don't know how you can, you know, combine these three different, you know, approaches in, in the one. But talking about defence, uh, well, for the time being, it it's, it looks like more or less successful. Talking about deterrence, I would probably say that at a certain moment, uh, we will have to make or to reconsider <laughs> history, how we can deter Russia. Because so far, we see the Russia still keeping an initiative, still pushing these red lines. Let, let's uh, leave a dialogue. But coming back again to defense, if it if you are talking about passive defense, that providing military assistance, either little or no little equipment for Ukraine, financial support, political support, that we are rather contributing to this passive kind of defense. If we one day we start about active defense, that then Ukraine may be seen as a great asset for the West as an instrument of active defense, or I would say offense, against Russia. Because what is the main challenge for the current regime in the Kremlin? The main challenge, I mean on the side of Ukraine, is not Ukrainian military capabilities. Ukraine had never reached even a balance with the Russian military capabilities. But if one day Ukraine can present a better model for the Russian society. It will be a real challenge for the current Russian regime. So that's, again, talking about uh, Western and American interest in supporting Ukraine, in helping Ukraine to develop in this direction of becoming prosperous and democratic country. I I think that we or you should think about your own interest. And my last point about. ukraine uh, us role and ukrainian expectations mean, after or during the us elections uh, it was it was a shock let's admit when we discovered the results of possible results of the american elections but at the end, at the end of the day it turned to be good news for ukraine because finally Many in Ukraine who expected that, you, that the West will come and rescue Ukraine understood that this is the Ukrainian business to take care about our country. Before we
2: open it up for questions, I, I did want to tee off Mr. Melnick's point about Russia as a party to the conflict. Russia's going and has, for the last three years, played the most fundamental role in, in developing, stewing, and continuing this conflict as a result Russia has the ultimate say, some would say, in in the future of the conflict. And Russia, frankly, has had little incentive to change its approach, both because understanding of a transition here in the United States and because it has been able to showcase, at least on paper, a commitment to the Minsk Agreement, where in reality, the violation of the Minsk Agreement has not resulted in any change on sanctions. It has not resulted in any change on the U.S. approach to defense assistance to Ukraine. And it hasn't really changed Uh, Russia's at least belief that changing the conflict or resolving it is in Russia's interest at all. Considering also that Russia has looked at the Ukraine issue in a transactional approach and as a part of a wider discussion with the United States and with the Europeans on global issues like Syria and elsewhere, I'd be very interested in your views on how Russia will be either incentivized to change its approach, uh, either through sanctions or through defense assistance? And is there a way to incentivize Russia to get more progress on this issue without hopefully, frankly, trading Ukraine for cooperation with Russia in another area of, uh, of U.S. interest like Syria?
3: There was a great challenge, I think, and a kind of fear in, in Ukraine, that Ukraine would be trade off for, you know a kind of making deal between the U.S. and Russia. And I think it's in the past already. Is there any Russian interest in the resolution of the conflict in Ukraine? So far, I don't see any, let's say, incentives for the Russian Federation. I mean, it's absolutely logical. It's, It's absolutely beneficial for Russia to stop this conflict. But so far, I don't see any evidences that anything can be changed in the uh, Russian decision makers' mind. It's unfortunately what we see. But coming back again to, to uh, the Minsk Agreement, everything that you said is right. But one of the shortcomings of this paper, I mean Minsk Agreement or record, whatever it's called, that Russia not mentioned even once in the whole text of the Minsk Agreement. So there are no Russian commitments, and Russia not a party to the conflict. And, but having said that, I, fully aware that even if we, very carefully, make Russia blame Russia in every uh, chapter or every you know, you know, sentence for this conflict, it's not going to work because after Russia violated dozens of uh, international. Uh, rules and uh, dozens of uh, bilateral agreements. I don't think that any perfect text will, will help the situation.
4: I, th- I have a two points. First of all, when we are speaking about great bargaining about deal, uh, I think the most important not such deal, but implementation of this deal. When people try to compare the situation with Yalta, now it's impossible because Yalta can be, could be implemented implemented in uh, because uh, the Soviet Union deployed eleven million uh, army in Eastern European uh, countries, and uh, Yalta only um, formalized real situation. Now Ukraine is not our object, but the subject of these matters. When we are speaking, uh, the second uh, small point, which I think is the most <coughs> important, I think uh, that we are saying no, we have to say not about resolution of current conflict, but about uh, but about strengthening the world order, so creation a uh, real strong rules and real measures which can uh, support this, uh, these rules and will not allow countries such as current Russian federation to violate this rule. we can Uh, resolve uh, uh, some uh, conflict. But after this, uh, Russia will create the next conflict in other places. We have to resolve problems and resolve these reasons, but not uh, the results of uh, acting of this uh, uh, reason. Two points
5: uh, I'll make. First, I think that Alexander's last point is extremely well taken. Uh, The fact that the uh, liberal international order and the rules-based order by which peace, security, stability has been maintained has been challenged. And to leave it just not being defended and not having a unified and sustained approach Um, is unfortunate. And I agree with you that it's crucial that that's a way forward, one way forward, um, (coughs) that that framework must be upheld and all must be accountable to those rules. Secondly, I had the privilege of joining the NATO Secretary General and Ambassador Sandy Birshbaugh, who's here, at the rollout of a report that the Secretary General, former Secretary General, had commissioned on the issue of sanctions, I thought it was very potent and very compelling, because what the report in some states is is that you cannot have uh, uh, inaction because there are costs associated with inaction. The sanctions not only should be maintained and sustained, but should in fact Uh, be expanded. Consideration should be given to that if there is not a freezing of the conflict or an actual concrete, tangible negotiation going forward. Um, And I only say the freezing of the uh, conflict in the interim basis, but really a genuine uh, indication of going forward in a direction for reconciliation and a solution here. But the point about the sanctions, they must be sustained, they must be looked at, they must be uh, also expanded. And that was the essence of that report, and I think very, very key, because in terms of impacting Russia, I do think that there was a correlation, and one can point to how that has had an impact on a country that is dealing with some dire economic (laughs) issues itself.
2: And if I could just quickly jump in, if, Bridget, if you respond, is sanctions increasing a potential option that Secretary Tillerson is bringing to Moscow on his trip next week?
6: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Don't put her on the spot or anything more.
1: <laughs> I would say, so President Trump has said uh, very early in, the, in uh, the administration that it's too early to talk about sanctions. So... I don't have more to say on that at this moment, but I, I would say that we're looking, as everyone has uh, mentioned at all of the possible ways uh, that we could find a way forward with Russia but with the rest of the Normandy format partners to see Minsk implemented. Uh, maybe I'll let if it all right I'll, I have one more comment based on the um, the discussion, which I thought was really interesting, on this question. And I would just, again, maybe just step back a little bit in that, obviously, uh, the occupation of Crimea, the Russia's aggression, Eastern Ukraine, has had a, a very shocking, palpable effect on uh, European security and our view of European security, which obviously affects America very closely as well. Uh, but I would also look at the antecedent to this, or antecedents. And I would say that I think uh, one of the things that um, we need to make sure we're we're looking at this is in the context of Georgia in uh, 2008 and what that meant at that time and what that can mean in future. And so our reaction in terms of Ukraine is one that is, in that broader context, in my mind, since Mark and I actually lived through some of the 2008 in Georgia together. But what is happening with Russia and its periphery and its neighborhood is one that, from a US security perspective, is one that is against our security in terms of not respecting the territorial integrity of its neighbors and the sovereignty of its neighbors and the choices of its neighbors. So some of the things that we have called out Uh, with regard to what's happening just publicly are things such as uh, in eastern Ukraine it's the recognition of the uh, separatist uh, documentation it's the declaration of a so-called border uh, along the line of contact it's the nationalization of industries Uh, but also if you look at for example Abkhazia and South Ossetia it's the integration of the Abkhaz and South Ossetian military forces into the Russian military. It's the uh, integration of other structures uh, in South Ossetia and Abkhazia into Russia. Um, it's, It's elections that are happening in South Ossetia and a referendum there that's coming up and then the previous elections in Abkhazia. Also Transnistria is another case in point. Uh, so anyway, there are many examples. And I think to look at this, uh, it's important to look at it in this broader uh, perspective, because uh, it also underlines why, from from the US perspective and from the administration perspective, it's really important to have very clear messaging. And the Secretary did announce today his travel to Moscow. And, and part of that announcement is to have a clear and open conversation uh, with Russia on, on, on Ukraine and on a broader set of issues
0: as well. I think the conversation so far has been too sour because, in fact, while Ukraine has vulnerabilities and Ukraine is hurting as a result of the Russian war in the east, um, Russia also has vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities are the fact that the sanctions have taken 1 to 1.5 percent of their GDP in 2015. We don't have the figures yet for 16. Of the vulnerabilities that Putin cannot afford to have Russian soldiers dead because the Russian people don't want Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine. So what that means for us is we should increase the costs on him for his adventure in Ukraine. Now Bridget correctly broadened the conversation to talk about the near abroad. We should also broaden further to talk about NATO. So it's very much a vital American interest as a forward defense of NATO to impose greater cost on the Kremlin for its aggression in Ukraine and those greater costs would come, for example, by increasing sanctions. Uh, that's probably not possible in the current environment, either in Washington or Europe. The other thing we could do is provide serious weapons to Ukraine to fight the Kremlin. Those weapons should include more counter-battery radars, we're already providing this, which will, will greatly reduce Ukrainian casualties and increase Russian casualties. We should provide javelins, which will kill Russian tanks, which would have been essential for Russian land grabs. And we should also consider providing Bradley Fighting Vehicles. We have lots of these in storage. We can provide them to Ukraine at no cost to ourselves. If we do these things, the cost for Mr. Putin of his excellent adventure in Ukraine will go way up. And we will be in a position to help Ukraine reclaim the Donbass.
2: Thanks. With that, we want to save plenty of time for questions. Um, Open the floor.
3: (laughs) Please.
7: Uh, Deputy Chief of Mission of Ukraine, uh, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Brink, for your continuous support and for your personal, for your personal, very strong engagement uh, in supporting Ukraine. Uh, thank you very much, Ambassador Herbst, uh, Ambassador Dubiansky, for for your very live Expert voice in support of Ukraine. I would like to um, uh, reiterate the message from my colleagues that um, building defense of Ukraine and um, increasing deterrence capacity is very important not only for Ukraine, but for the entire uh, international <coughs> security, and we believe for the interest of the United States. Um, let me just uh, uh, draw a like, few examples that um, the brigade, the 72nd Brigade that was uh, trained uh, with the assistance of the United States uh, was the one that very effectively repelled aggression in Avdiivka, and that was, Done with U.S. efforts, and we hear continuously that um, trainings that take place in Ukraine are not only um, helpful for Ukraine, but it's also um, a, a good opportunity for for the United States to um, to get the, the first-hand experience about how to face and how to uh, combat against the cyber threats and the 21st century threats. So, it's we believe it's a it's a very good exercise for for both countries. And this is something that can build up the deterrence capacity in future, uh, and, and, and can certainly um, help in facing such challenges. So, um, and on the, uh, if you allow me, a short comment uh, on, on your question about. Uh, um possibility for the secretary's visit i just wanted to thank very much the U- the great ukrainian american community and the, namely the ukrainian congressional committee of america who signed the, and issued an open letter to secretary tillerson inviting him to ukraine um before the potential and the possible visits more eastwards so thank you very much that was a comment sorry no questions
8: <laughs>
4: Sorry, I have. Uh, I'm very thankful for Oksana for your comments, and I have add a, a, a one point. Ukraine need not help, but cooperation and a real partnership. And the exercise uh, in training of Ukrainian soldiers, it's a brilliant example of this kind of help, of this kind of partnership. When the U.S. Support Ukrainian military reform, military reform, Ukrainian uh, civil security sector reform. U.S. make a brilliant investment for deterring Russia and develop the, our country as a real sec- example of successful development in uh, Eastern Europe. It's a huge investment in the future. In the uh, development, not only Ukraine, but all Eastern Europe and Russia as well,
2: If anyone else wants to answer, otherwise we'll keep moving. Questions, there's a large interest. I'm going to
5: make it just a footnote. Yep. I think you underscore, Oksana, the fact that there isn't one silver bullet for influencing the situation. It does mention what's done politically in terms of the rules-based order. I think it does matter in terms of the sanctions approach, and it certainly does matter in terms of what uh, kind of assistance is rendered in cooperation militarily in exerting leverage.
2: We'll start one more up front before heading to the back.
8: Hi, uh, Jock Mendoza-Wilson from System Capital Management Group uh, in Ukraine, it's the business group owned by the Ukrainian businessman Reynald Akhmetov. I was fascinated by this discussion on sanctions and whether those could be expanded. As you all know, uh, at the beginning of this month, uh, uh, our business group, uh, along with many others, lost uh, numerous assets in non-government controlled territory. In fact, we lost 16 businesses. And I think an estimate in total across all businesses, not just our own, $2 billion worth of assets were lost, which brought $3, million, $3 billion of income into Ukraine. Surely this is a great opportunity uh, to examine those who have... And I, I know the word nationalized has been used, but let me be very clear. Those assets were not nationalized. They were seized by armed force and expropriated which in my view is not nationalisation but theft, this is surely a clear opportunity to identify where possible those individuals, organisations or governments which played a role or part in that and add them quickly to the sanctions list because this type of action should not be rewarded but rather immediately taken care of. Thanks.
0: Yep. There
5: was a question for you from uh, former Minister Uresco yes. yeah, asking good. you if you have a list. Uh, do I have
8: a list? <laughs> yeah, sorry, without the microphone. Yeah, I have, we have a detailed list <laughs> and a detailed action
0: plan for... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have
8: a detailed list and we have a detailed action plan for legal action uh, both in Ukraine, which is necessary to take in order to establish the fact that those assets have been stolen, and we will take rigorous legal action in all territories and we have already written to those people who may potentially be beneficiaries of those stolen assets to advise them of their legal responsibilities of due diligence when accepting either stolen assets or products which may have come from those stolen assets. So we will be very vigorous in our defence and we look forward to the international community being supportive (laughs) also of that action.
6: Elaine Soreo Associate Rector for WIUU in Kiev, Ukraine. I thank you for that lead-in on the private sector. Um, I really wanted to ask a tie-in in terms of uh, Ambassador Dobronofsky and uh, Ms. Dr. Levinchenko. Uh, right now, would you, how you, would you see the addressing of Cybersecurity and energy security that could be developed through U.S. private sector in the partnership with Ukrainian private sector to deliver that security, particularly as it could reinforce or be reinforced by a position of the U.S. government staying firm on uh, the no. The no change of borders uh, statement that was made. Um, would would you like to address that, please?
5: He wants me to go first. <laughs> uh, I, will, I will. defer to you on the issue of cybersecurity. But with regard to energy, I think that energy is. My mic. My mic is on me.
0: It is oh. closer now. Well,
5: it's as high as it goes. <laughs> uh, I'll try to speak up. All right, sorry. Uh, uh, I think the volume has gone up. Uh, it just I, I didn't have volume. Um, on energy, I think that energy is a key issue for Ukraine. I'm sure you heard earlier that in terms of sectoral reforms, there have been some significant reforms and changes that have been made in this sector, which I think can only benefit Ukraine in terms of its access to energy. I also have been very impressed in terms of Europe as a whole, particularly Central Europe, has also been coming forward with some very creative ideas in ensuring that energy sources get to, uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, Ukraine. And I believe it was said, I think in your statistic, am I correct in saying that this year was I think one of the first years where there was a lack of reliance, uh, as you pointed out. So I think it's on a very good trajectory. So, sorry, over five hundred days. Over five hundred days. A very good trajectory uh, in the energy sector. But I'll leave cyber sure. to you.
4: Thank <laughs> you so much. Um, you see, unfortunately, Ukraine uh, has became uh, has been became a uh, training field for new military technologies for uh, and in cybersphere as well. And uh, if you know, for last two years, two last December, we met a full-scale, huge-scale uh, cyber attack on our energy sector, transport, Financial sector, banking, etc. Et it uh, forced us to implement a very strict measures. To, uh, on uh, ma- March of two thousand sixteen, President the President Poroshenko signed uh, the cyber strategy. We. We uh, defined responsibility of uh, state uh, bodies, and now we are working on uh, development of state-private partnership in this sphere. Of course, we have a huge problem with this, and I am very thankful for NATO, for US, for uh, other. Western countries for help us in cyber security sphere. But we are working and the situation in December of 2016 uh, demonstrate that we achieved uh, some real progress in this sphere because we, uh, <coughs> uh, we managed to address this cyber incident, this cyber threats in this year much quicker and much more effective than it was one year ago but uh, what I want to insist uh, only with partnership with close cooperation with NATO with European Union with US we can defend our cyber uh, assets as well and to your cyber assets because it's too difficult to divide cyberspace by national borders. We've
2: got time for one more round of questions. I'll take three questions if you can limit your intervention to a question only. I'd appreciate so it. We get one more round of, uh, of discussion. There in the back.
0: Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Tanya Klamukova. I'm a reporter for news agency, VIA Novosti. Uh, thank you very much for an interesting discussion. Uh, on the first panel session, Mr. Ambassador uh, Valery Chal- Chalov said that it would be very bad if uh, American administration cut financial um, uh, international aid, specifically for Ukraine. Uh, so do you think that uh, international and uh, military aid to Ukraine will remain at the same level or probably will be increased? And follow up question about um, um, Mr. Tillerson's uh, visit um, to Ukraine, if that might happen anytime soon. And my question is to Ms. Brink. Thank you very much.
2: Any <coughs> right here. Well, my name is Jim Green. I uh, wait for Green the NATO's mic. So you can wait for the mic.
9: Hi, my name is Jim Green. I uh, was chief of mission for NATO from 2004 to 2009, the last time there was a real opportunity. Um, have the pleasure of working with the Rasmussen Club Center still as a, a visiting fellow. Um, the question I have is: To what extent did the has the U.S. failure to really provide strong military support early this sort of creeping slowness of a little bit of this and a little bit of that spoiled some of the the leverage that we might have had in areas like countering corruption and legal changes and that sort of thing. And, and would an acceleration make a difference um, in having more influence in Ukraine, meeting Ambassador Herp's request, um, or, or push for more weapons, uh, lethal defensive weapons? On the other side, it's well known that there are certain key people um, that are blocking reform and that are capable, even in the military area, in the area of corruption, and, and everyone knows who they are, and everyone knows the old thinking. Is it possible that there some action in this area of, of getting beyond this could, uh, um, from the American point of view, help accelerate
2: support for Ukraine? Last question. Right here.
10: <coughs> Uh, hello. Uh, my name is Vadim Panasuk. I'm, uh, uh, I work with Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America uh, on their uh, rapid response referral program, but I'm here as a private citizen. Uh, my question is for uh, Mr. Uh, Alexander. Um, uh, from where I'm sitting, um, I see that Crimea is uh, firmly in the Russian hands, and uh, it's, uh, the Ukrainian um, official position is that Crimea must be returned. Um, under what conditions do you see that happening, uh, and uh, what would, you know, influence Russia or through what kind of action, uh, you know, that would happen? And um, uh, kind of uh, moving on to Donbass um, uh, in terms of uh, the humanitarian question uh, there. Um, it is uh, my understanding that uh, you know Donbas is administered by a, a military administration, not a civilian one. Um, however. Uh, uh, the people of Donbass are still Ukrainian people as far as Everyone should be concerned, in my opinion. Um, What measures um, are we doing to keep, uh, you know, and what kind of political discourse are we having in terms of separatism and everything else um, that would, um, and what kind of actions are we taking in terms of uh, any olive branches, in terms of any actions to kind of keep the population from firmly going into uh, the hands of uh, Russian influenced forces and kind of slipping out of
2: Ukrainian hands? Thank you. We've got about five minutes to hit questions on will aid be cut or increased for Ukraine, the potential for a Secretary of State or other US official visit to Ukraine, uh, military and defense equipment is leveraged for domestic reforms in Ukraine, and finally, conditions for Crimean return and Donbas. And again, feel free to answer any or all of the questions at your leisure.
3: Let, let me just for a matter of time make two comments. First about the financial assistance from the United States. If we look at the numbers, and you compare the numbers that Ukraine spent (coughs) on its defense, I would say that probably this is not a matter of numbers. This is a matter of fact that we have military assistance, financial assistance from the United States. And it shows a great support. It, It shows that we are on the right side. second point about reform obstacles. We often talk about corrupt corrupt officials, about different things, and uh, low-level professionals. But let me tell you that those people who sometimes are not so enthusiastic about changes, about advices given by international or civil society activists, they, they do not necessarily corrupt, or they're not like old thinkers. Because for instance, uh, uh, I can give you one example of state border reform in Ukraine. The state border reform in Ukraine was the most successful one until 2014. But in 2014, we figured out that this model of the European police border border service service is actually was not capable to perform its duty on the Eastern Front. So my point is that. Sometimes people who are reluctant to reform, they they actually guide it with very good incentives. So we, we should also keep in mind, at least when we you know make strong comments or assessments about reform progress and people uh, or sabotage of reforms in Ukraine.
4: Uh, I want to answer for Mr. Panasiuk. First of all, I want to insist that Crimea has been, is, and will be an integral part of Ukrainian national territory. And I do believe that Russia will return this under the international uh, pressure, under uh, the change of Russian uh, domestic policy, and or which one I don't know. I think that the most important uh, task for Ukraine right now to help uh, people, Ukrainian citizens, uh, people who live uh, live in Crimea, who lives in Crimea, to defend their uh, rights. You know how many human rights abuse uh, Russian occupation uh, uh, power makes in uh, Crimea. I'm, I mentioned about Crimea Tatars uh, people who are who are targeted by Russian uh, secret police. I mentioned about Ukrainian activists, etc. When we are speaking about uh, Donbas situation, of course. People who lives on Donbass has been are, and will be uh, a Ukra- Ukrainian citizens, and uh, of course I can't say that we are, uh, do what we have to, to do, uh, and uh, we have many problems with humanita- on humanitarian issues, with economic etc. But. The intentions of Ukrainian uh, government, all Ukrainian official documents, all citation uh, have um, only one uh, have one very important priority: to defend rights and uh, interest of people who are under the occupation. Now, from my point of view people who lives in uh, Donbas is the biggest uh, victims of Russian aggression who uh, forced forced, uh, them to be in extremely difficult economic, political uh, uh, situation under pressure of unlegal power. Under uh, uh, their uh, political rights, and now not only political, but uh, economic rights, and the huge uh, press from Russian and Russian-backed <laughs> separatists.
5: I will just make a quick comment about the failure to provide assistance earlier. I think it was more directed to uh, Ambassador Herbst, but as, as I heard the question, but I'd say that, you know, in hindsight, I think there were things that we could have done, we should have done in all the different sectors, be it the military sector and the request for the lethal weaponry, uh, looking at the range of sanctions that were deployed, uh, no less ultimately what came out of the NATO decision-making you know, in terms of the forward uh, deployment of, of, of troops. So you know, always in hindsight you can, and I, I think there were missed opportunities. But I also want to add in the mix something, and I carried the statement uh, that Secretary Tillerson made, because I thought it was a very potent statement. He also made a point which you touched upon, and that is, he says, it serves no purpose for Ukraine to fight for its body in Donbass if it loses its soul to corruption. Because you're also, in your statement, I heard that component, at least I think I did, in terms of also the kinds of steps that also must be afoot in Ukraine. And I think that that was also part of the analysis at the time of what one does how one does it in also at the same time that Ukraine undertakes reforms uh, I would say that um, uh, uh, it's again it's easy to look in hindsight I think that in terms of all of these sectors I think that uh, certainly there's a recognition of Ukraine's importance and how all of these areas will matter for its future
0: Paul. I think, first, it's quite possible there will be a drop in, in aid to Ukraine this year, and I'm sorry to say that, but if it happens, it will happen not because of factors relating to Ukraine, but because of American domestic politics cutting spending. I would strongly oppose linking military support to Ukraine for reform. We have a vital interest in giving the Kremlin a bloody nose in Ukraine. And that's why we should be also keeping our commitment to Ukraine under the Budapest Memorandum, and that's why we should provide military support for Ukraine. On Crimea, it's not going to be returned anytime soon, but our policy is going to be like our policy in the Baltic states, and that will get Ukraine back, Crimea, at some point down the road. (coughs) Last point not related to the question, something I should have mentioned earlier. Something everyone should be aware of is that some idiot Serving Kremlin interests, either from stupidity or from something else, snuck into the uh, Defense Act last year, the defense budget, a provision saying we should provide no man pads, portable missiles to Ukraine because there are fascists in the Ukrainian military. This should be removed from defense spending to open the way for uh, providing these weapon systems to Ukraine for defensive purposes. And someone, some investigative reporters should seek out the people who did that and ask them why they did it. Thank you.
1: Uh, So just to answer I think a couple of these questions with regard to the budget cuts, I have to say I agree with Ambassador Herbst that uh, the president's budget is going to be slimmer than previous budgets. Obviously, this is something that Congress then appropriates, but my anticipation is that we will have a smaller budget across the board and the State Department and our foreign assistance is uh, the part of that budget that's getting a very serious cut. Uh, part of being a good news story is implementing reforms and having reforms go forward. And this goes to, I think, the question from someone here about uh, people who may be in the way of reforms. And I would just say, you know, uh, sitting here, you have former minister, Juresko, one of the key reformers, and there are many, many people out there who have contributed to the success of Ukraine so far. And uh, to make the best argument and to help me make the best argument in terms of U.S. support, financial assistance support to Ukraine, those reformers need to be supported uh, need to continue. And anyone who is not in that, in that camp, um, it, it is only undermining U.S. support, international support and U.S. Uh, investment. With regard to uh, a visit, thank you, Oksana. (laughs) Noted, I've got it, I've got the request. Uh, I would say that we have um, tried to make sure, and our principals and cabinet members have tried to make sure that Ukraine is at the top of uh, the agenda. So uh, President Trump has talked to President Poroshenko on the telephone, Vice President uh, Pence had the opportunity to to meet uh, President Poroshenko in Munich, and Secretary Tillerson also has been able to uh, meet Foreign Minister Klimkin here. Uh, we will continue to have as robust a uh, meeting schedule as possible, and uh, considering at where we are in the administration, uh, I'm, I'm happy that we're at a point where we've had a very strong, uh, high-level dialogue, and I should expect that that will continue, so thank you.
2: I want to thank all of you for your interest and questions, and particularly thank the panelists for your pointed remarks. Uh, I thought it was a great group. Um, you know, the Trump administration clearly is going to be faced with a wide array of challenges, but inevitably Russia and Ukraine is an issue that they're not going to be able to ignore. And as Bridget said in the back room, you know, there's views that the State Department sitting on its hands, but the, the people that are covering these issues on Ukraine and Russia are very busy. And Bridget has just returned, her boss is heading out, and I do believe we're going to have a Putin and Trump summit this year. So clearly the more that is in the public eye on this issue, the more the administration in the U.S. will have to come on what its policy will be. And I think all of us hope that the U.S. will continue to play a robust role uh, and that we can get to some sort of positive resolution of the conflict. And again, thanks for all your patience and look forward to the afternoon panel to come. Thanks.